This podcast has been made possible by Planful and U.S. Bank. This is episode 521. Right now we're at an exciting stage where we're seeing for the first time pretty compelling evidence that our drug works in these very refractory patients. But when you can see patients improving and, and living longer, even when it's a handful of patients, it's really um, exciting for everybody at the company and for our uh, investigators who are uh, seeing these patients on a, on a daily basis. So from that perspective, the uh, prospect of commercializing the drug and making it available to to the masses as opposed to the select few, which is which is uh, who have access to the drug now, that's very, uh, that's very exciting and very compelling. Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak to Mark Sagerin, CFO of Arcule a biopharmaceutical company engaged in the research and development of targeted therapeutics to treat cancers in certain rare diseases. Part of what we hope to reveal on this podcast is the variety of different professional experiences that lead to the CFO office. And as you'll learn, Mark Sagerin is undoubtedly the right person for this CFO role. But we'd argue there are remarkably very few individuals willing to take the same path Mark took. At the same time, after speaking with Mark, I don't think given a choice, he would have done it any differently. You be the judge. Our discussion with Mark Sagerin begins after this message. In an ever-changing world, it can be tough to keep up with the latest FP&A trends and innovations that keep you ahead of the game. Luckily, there's a podcast for that. Tune in to Being Planful, the podcast for finance leaders and planning experts, and stay in the know about what's happening in planning and forecasting. Guests like influencer Chris Ortega, Boston Red Sox CFO Tim Zhu and Brian Lapidus of AFP will keep you up to speed on how you can put finance in the driver's seat this year. Find the full episodes at beingplanful.com or wherever you get your podcasts. P.S. Think you might make a great guest on the show? Shoot host Rowan Tonkin an email at beingplanful.com at planful.com. Hello, we're speaking to Mark Sagerin, CFO of Arcule. Mark, welcome. Thank you very much, Jack, for having me. Well, Mark, I, I want to mention up front, you do have an interesting background, so I've been looking forward to asking you this very question, which is always our first question. Look back for us and tell us a little bit about those experiences you feel helped prepare you for a finance leadership role. What comes to mind for you? Sure, happy to. Um, you're right, I've had a bit of uh, an unusual path to this uh, spot probably for sure. 
with all of the experiences I think were very relevant to uh, getting in here and kind of rounding out the the, uh, the, the experience. I think it's sort of uh, a combination of education, uh, the investment banking, healthcare investment banking half of my uh, background as well as my uh, biotech uh, biotech component. So uh, all three of these things really are at the intersection of science and business. The education is, is uh, finished up anyway at the Dartmouth and it combines MD&BA program, which is an excellent program and really was great at opening my eyes to the various ways that you can contribute to healthcare and medical science, but without being uh, in the hospital where I obviously was in, uh, in medical school. And then in, in investment banking, you really understand, which was my, my first uh, foray right after school at, at uh, Goldman Sachs in the Healthcare Investment Banking Group, you really understand um, the nuts and bolts in a much uh, more in-the-weeds uh, way how healthcare and how biotech industry is, is funded and how drugs are progressed through the various stages into uh, the clinic and then ultimately commercialized. And in biotech itself, you're obviously much closer to the actual um, science. You're the one that's actually doing the drug development and getting them uh, pushed along. So it's really a combination of those three things, I think, that that gave me the well-rounded experience to um, kind of contribute at a small company um, like Arcule in the in the variety of ways that I'm forced to uh, contribute given our, our small size and limited resources. Well, thank you. I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind. This is a little unusual. I'd like to go a little further back with you if you permit us, just because I think you do have such a distinguished academic background and uh, along the way, what you might have discovered. Am I right? You began, uh, and, and I don't always go back this far, but I do think uh, it, I just find it intriguing. It's like a mystery I want to solve. Uh, you began at Tulane, and you studied business. Is that correct? Yes, I, absolutely. So um, that's going uh, way back now, um, uh, but uh, certainly had an interest in uh, business and, and finance, I think, was the actual actual degree and used that a, a little bit in my very first job when I was 20 in New York City as an options trader on the floor of the New York Mercantile Exchange, which was, a, which was a fun job, but not one that I thought was, for me anyway, fulfilling enough that I wanted to do it for the rest of uh, my life. So I felt um, in some way um, undereducated in that sense. I wanted to sort of uh, pursue uh, a, a passion to, to really um, specialize and, and excel at something. And that's when I decided to go back to school um, and, and, and go to medical school and be a doctor. At some point, obviously, uh, later in that, in that process, as I got much more um, familiar with what it meant to be uh, a neurosurgeon versus a radiation oncologist versus a primary care doc, et cetera, um, and also had the um, luxury of, of attending the business school at Dartmouth, um, I kind of had a wide variety of options. And at that point, you know, you kind of have to declare your major at, at some point in life. And at that point, I thought that sort of the intersection of my abilities, but also my, my passions was, was best served out in the, in the sort of uh, drug development world where you're really trying to develop drugs for the next wave of innovation that will help people who aren't you know, who aren't sick yet, right? When you're working in the hospital, you're helping folks who are, who are sick today, which, of course, is excellent and very noble um, profession. But for me, I thought where my interests lie, and this would be my, 
skills can be best put to use. It's a little bit um, more interesting and there's a lot more white space uh, for me anyway to be out in the world where you know, anything is possible and focus your attention on the biggest unmet needs and what are the ways, what are the kind of new scientific advances that are emerging that may be able to combat these, these major you know, remaining unmet medical needs. Just one more uh, question on your, your academic uh, uh, period of your, your uh, career. Uh, you, you did study at both uh, Dartmouth and Harvard. Is that right? How does that yeah, so, yeah, absolutely. So Harvard was, a, was an important uh, transitional um, element for me. And, and I, I took some graduate school, but also a lot of undergraduate classes um, at Harvard, mostly sciences, although there was math and, and biochemistry mixed in. But a lot of the basic sciences, and I took it, uh, took the MCAT and wound up uh, you know, teaching uh, for, for two years there, both in the physics and chemistry department, uh, before uh, heading up a couple miles north to uh, Dartmouth for medical school. Okay, so it's, uh, it's a great time. What, what, what I'm thinking is to get into medical school, you had this other uh, earlier degree that was in business. You had to beef it up and get your sciences in order, and you go to Harvard exactly. to do that, and then you get into exactly. Dartmouth Medical School. Yeah. That's exactly right. You can't just, um, like some of the other graduate schools, sort of apply to any major. There's a certain amount of prerequisites. Plus, the MCAT is not a general test like the SAT. It's specific. It has physics and organic chemistry and everything that. So if you haven't taken those courses, you'd be uh, in big trouble for the MCAT. Well, and, and, and finally, I promise we're going to move forward into the commercial world with you, but I just want to point out, okay, and while you're at Harvard getting all those uh, extra uh, classes and courses and credits, you, you, uh, you leave Harvard with a 4.0 average, is that right? Oh, you really uh, did, did your homework. Sorry, I, I, I'm picking yeah. some of the items out of this bio I received, but i got to say, um, so you weren't messing around. You you wanted to go back, and you're going to um, hit it out of the I park. Uh, I, I, I left it all in the field. I left it all in the field. If wow. I continue the, uh, the sports analogies, for sure. <laughs> okay. All right. And uh, as we mentioned, and, and, of course, you were a teaching fellow at Harvard for uh, a few years as well. Um, and not to undersell uh, uh, your, your years at Dartmouth. But you went back and you just uh, seriously uh, wanted to get your, your medical <laughs> cred, and, and then you move into the commercial world. Um, were you thinking of medicine, though? I mean, you must have given it some thought. Uh, and, uh, share with that with us. Uh, instead, you go to Goldman Sachs. Tell us how that transition happens. It absolutely was. In fact, when I when I started, uh, I was 100% uh, uh, dedicated to a lifetime in the in the hospital. And even at the end, it wasn't the easiest of decisions because um, there were a lot of aspects of clinical medicine that, that I liked a lot. And in particular, uh, the field I probably would have chosen is radiation oncology. It had a good mix of sort of scientific innovation and really relevant, you know, uh, medical care. Obviously, being a very important field. Uh, in medicine as well. Um, so, so for me, the decision wasn't easy. But on the other hand, I really felt like there's a tremendous amount of, um, uh, you know, accomplishment and, and value in what could be done outside of the hospital. And uh, for me, it was just a sort of a combination of thinking about, you know, what are, what are the options that are available to me, what I really like to do, and what is the biggest um, unmet need. 
And I did make the decision to go, you know, to Goldman Sachs with their healthcare group, right? So all of my clients were biotech clients. And I mean, to, to some extent, I was uh, shielded, if you will, from a lot of the goings on of the big um, investment bank. I was really focused on what are my clients doing? What is this biotech client doing? What is this cancer or neurology company doing? And how do they, um, what are their big strategic challenges going forward? Who's going to buy them? Who should buy? And how are they going to raise the money to fund their clinical programs? So in that sense, it's Goldman Sachs, but it's really, you know, you're really focused on your your uh, individual clients. Wow. Still uh, interesting. I, I do think you're you're sort of even in that world, you you are pretty uh, set apart uh, from a lot of the professionals. I imagine some do have medical degrees and some background, but I have to believe you were uh, somewhat unique. Um, and as you move forward as well, is that Am I characterizing that correctly? Are you comfortable with that? Would you rather put it another way? No, I think that's I think that's fair. But there's also in, in my sort of specific field, call it this, the sub five billion dollar um, biotech, uh, you know, relatively small biotech field. There is I'm, I'm certainly not the only um, call it strategic, uh, medically focused uh, biotech CFO out there. There's maybe the trend has increased in the last five or six years. But I think a lot of folks with science degree, whether it's an MD or, or a science PhD, have been pulled out of investment banking or consulting firms um, or, or sometimes uh, larger biotech to take on a more strategy-focused CFO role in a, in a company that has um, a strong accounting and controlling function already. Because um, the one thing that you may have noticed I don't have in my background is sort of a big four accounting background or, or a CPA. So as a result, in, for folks like me uh, who are in this role, of course, you, you rely a lot on having an excellent um, team like we do here at Artool that, um, that, that is a, a sort of jealous shepherd of the accounting function um, and, and very reliable in that, in that, in that role. So that, that's cer certainly something that has to be present and, and accounted for in a very solid um, way in a, in a situation like this where, where you know, my, my focus is kind of broadly across the company as opposed to more specifically focused on our 10Ks and our 10Qs uh, and, and other sort of advocacy reporting requirements. And so uh, we want to we wanna get to our QL and ask you about that business, but again, I just want to point out, so... Uh, you mentioned uh, Goldman Sachs, but it was also, of course, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, and uh, Citigroup, uh, City Healthcare Investment Banking as well. So you clearly um, uh, went on to build your career in this investment banking portion of, of the healthcare realm. And then finally, you know, you had some other opportunities that came your way, including Arcule. This is where I we want to discover what was it that you saw, what is the nature of uh, Arcule's business, its offerings. What would you share with us? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, been familiar with the company for for several years, but really um, got closer to the company in the last uh, couple. Um, this is a company that has gone through several iterations, and the most recent, I, I feel, is, is uh, potentially the most the most interesting. Um, this company has uh, several programs, not just one, and, and a couple of them are really um, tied, if you will, in the, in the sense that they are uh, both at critical inflection points, and they're developing right now, where they're entering 
uh, or very close to entering the registration or sort of phase three component of the clinical trial, and also have been um, releasing very promising data in these patients of interest in the target uh, populations of interest. And so you're going from sort of preclinical experiments, which was a couple years ago, which is interesting and you have to do it, but it's slower and at the end of the day, nobody really cares what you do to mice, they only care what, what you do to patients with that disease in it. And so this company in the last year and for the next uh, six months, I'd say, will be very busy putting out this critically important um, data for food programs in both oncology medications as well as in certain ultra-orphan very rare pediatric genetic uh, diseases. And so for me that was a very exciting type of company to join because my, my role sort of dual became the CFO role as well as the head of strategy role. And so when you have just one program and it's early stage, it's not a lot of not as much strategic decisions to make because it's, it's fairly straightforward what you need to do. Here's a company with um, a lot of different decisions related to both the programs, how are you going to accelerate or decelerate programs. You're thinking about partnering. When is the time to do it? Do you do it earlier for less money? Or do you take the risk, progress it further, and, and, and potentially do a, a much richer deal with, with a larger partner? And so there's a lot of different um, decisions that come up um, and, and sort of trade-offs that have to be made with a company at this kind of critical juncture. And so for me, that was very exciting and definitely a big part of the reason why I joined the company. Of course, the indications are very um, relevant and important, very serious uh, diseases that are cranking up being well-treated. And the third, of course, is the team. I mean, that's especially important in a small company where only 40 people or so, although the market cap is over a billion dollars, it's still a, a small, very tight-knit sort of family company. And so those are the three factors that kind of pulled me back out to these places. You know, uh, even in biotech, we sometimes speak to CFOs who uh, it's about building the team. It's about, it's about the finance function. You convinced me that you were looking for this type of opportunity where you would have decision-making uh, responsibility over strategy. Uh, is that uh, too shorthand for you? No, I think that I think that um, covers it. There's almost uh, in quotes strategic CFO type of type of role that exists now in, in uh, somewhat uh, smaller biotechs, and these are the types of um, uh, roles that I, you know, people have reached out to me about over the over the years, and the types of roles that are, that are most interesting to me. If you're really looking for a, a strong sort of controller, a, a accounting CFO then I probably wouldn't hear about most of those, most of those opportunities probably wouldn't, wouldn't cross my desk. But, but you're right, I think it's that, um, that type of uh, broad perspective on, on the company, uh, what's the direction of the company, uh, we want to make sure we're well funded for it. Obviously there's a huge financial component to everything, everything we do, there's a cost in all of our decisions, uh, whether it's DB and partnering or clinical development costs, which are you know, both somewhat uh, substantial. Uh, as well as you know, hiring and, uh, and the like. So everything kind of uh, comes comes through the department, of course, but um, certainly having uh, access and being part of the conversation at, at least with the other departments is a, is a you know, critical sort of component of the role and one that, one that I'm definitely interested in. What, what stage of uh, 
development is our tool, and as it relates, to, I guess, to its capital structure, what would you tell us uh, if we were comparing this to other biotechs? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, our, our market cap is uh, between one and one and a half uh, billion right now. We just raised uh, uh, a couple weeks ago a little bit over $100 million in a, in a common stock offering, so we're relatively uh, well-funded for the next uh, several years, assuming nothing uh, dramatic changes and there's no major uh, additional expenses. Um, so from that perspective, we're uh, small but, but very um, very comfortable and very uh, secure in both our sort of financing runway uh, as well as our, our overhead. It's certainly in a manageable uh, manageable state. But that said, we're not a profit-making company. So when companies have products, they have revenues, and those revenues are higher than their expenses, they have free cash flow coming in. So we're not um, in that state, and we won't be in that state for, for many years. So until you, until you um, get there, you can't completely relax. You're, you're sort of sitting at the other side of the table now as you go out to raise money. You're the CFO. You're sitting there. You're any thoughts on that? Anything you uh, you didn't expect? Yeah, absolutely. So, so certainly the investment banking get the you get the repetitions and you get the experience with, with being on the other side and understanding how investors work and how, how bankers work. And of course, that that um, repetition and that experience is is um, critical in this role because a lot of things that seem like a black box or incomprehensible make a lot more sense when you when you side on the other side. And so, from this perspective, and now having raised money for RTO twice, once a couple weeks ago and once uh, last summer, um, I, I think things went, went really well. They're both very successful offerings. And nothing um, shocking, I'd say, from, from this side being on the other side. But um, again, that's all based on having a great team, having done a lot of sort of pre-work with our, with our core investors, so people were familiar with the story and, and up to date. And uh, most importantly, having um, a data-driven tailwind related to um, the development of the clinical pipeline. With someone with your background, I'm trying to figure out how to ask this question, and, and we'll move on after it. But again, you're, uh, you're a doctor. You've been around uh, medical professionals, scientific community. Um, as you look into the world of commercialization of these offerings, these types of offerings, and realize uh, all of what needs to happen to bring these types of offerings to market and serve patients, and I don't want to overstate something I really don't know all that much about, but one would think it's easy to become disenchanted. I don't know what the word I'm looking for. The commercialization process often takes the winds out of many people's sales, whether they be from a, the medical community, scientific community. This intersection of uh, the commercial world isn't always uh, pretty. It's not always uh, sometimes very clumsy. It's not always as fulfilling as they perhaps hoped. Uh, what, can you reflect on that uh, for us? I'm just curious from your, given your background, I think you're uniquely suited to, to answer that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think right now we're at an exciting stage where we're, where we're seeing for the first time pretty, I mean, at least internally, we feel like it's uh, pretty compelling evidence that our drug works in these very refractory patients who, you know, in many terms, they're, they're actively dying. And so because they've exhausted all the existing therapies, and then we can see 
certainly you can see patients improving and, and living longer, even if it's a handful, right? It's not thousands of patients, right? We don't have that um, much data yet. But even when it's a handful of patients, uh, it, it, it's really um, exciting for everybody at the company and for our uh, investigators who are uh, seeing these patients on a, on a daily basis. So from that perspective, the uh, prospect of commercializing the drug and making it available to, to the masses as opposed to the select few, which is, which is uh, who have access to the drug now, that's very, uh, that's very exciting and very compelling. And so there is a, um, a handoff normally at companies as you become a, a commercial stage company to um, more marketing-minded um, folks, which is not an area that I've uh, really spent much uh, professional time. Uh, because, of course, you need uh, a sales force and you need MSLs, and um, you know, we probably wouldn't have what communications we're thinking about, but some companies have television commercials and, and things like that. And that, that would certainly involve a, a handoff. But again, it's all related to trying to um, make sure that the drug is available to the largest number of uh, patients who may benefit from it. You mentioned you're, you're not a CPA. I don't know how you missed that uh, accolade, but <laughs> yeah. you mentioned you're not a CPA. I mean, what, tell us about your team and how you put that in place to help help uh, help you focus on the leadership challenges. Yeah, absolutely. So our team, we have a we have a very strong team, and uh, we've only made uh, some some modest changes to it in the last uh, year or two since I've been here. I think it's a it's a combination of, of really two principles. One is sort of continuity. Like I mentioned, we have a uh, relatively small 40-person company, and a lot of these folks have been here for a very long time. They're very loyal and have uh, stayed with the company for, for a long time and know each other and get along, etc. So from that perspective, I think there's this concept of it's an anchor from where it exists. So we really want to make sure that we have retained and incentivized the folks who have brought us to this point in, in the finance group and make sure that they that they stay. And there have been a couple of uh, key promotions, including um, our, our current controller. Um, and so that's uh, that's an important aspect. On the other hand, there's also um, some new ideas out there in finance. You mentioned software. That's that's one component. Um, there are some there are some innovations in the field that uh, we could probably benefit from doing in-house. And as a result, we've made a couple of very uh, select hires. Um, we recently hired an assistant controller who's, who's excellent. And we have someone starting uh, just later this month who also um, appears to, to bring some uh, sort of new capabilities to the group, if you will. So we've made some select um, hires, but for the most part, I think uh, the team that's in place has done a great job for the last five, even ten years and we want to keep the majority of that team uh, intact. So that's been the, that's been the, the basic premise for the, for the group as a whole. So uh, you mentioned you've raised some money, and I have to, among the metrics you're probably watching is uh, your cash levels and what have you, but what would you share with us about the key metrics you rely on? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of my uh, core responsibilities is to uh, investors, and, and the you know, reason I was, uh, I, I was, I was hired. Um, and obviously the core metrics that investors look at is the stock price. So therefore that's something that I need to be uh, but mindful of and kind of understand what the dynamics are, what are the trading patterns, and who's buying that stock, who's, who's losing that stock, and making sure 
sort of arguing out is, is healthy. And so that's certainly a, a metric that's important to me because it's important to, to all investors. Um, the other metrics that are more internal um, that, I, that I think are really important are that we're, you know, we've, we've done a good job of adequately funding the foreseeable future of everything that Brian, our CMO, wants to do from the clinical side. At the end of the day, we're a clinical company, we're a science company, and that's, that's our most, most important expense. And so we kind of have a responsibility to make sure that we've you know, discuss what's responsible to do from a clinical trial perspective, but once that decision has been made, it's, it's my job to make sure it's well-funded and that we don't run into a hiccup uh, and that we have good science to do and the money to do it with. When it comes to the, uh, let's call it the, the reporting function, have you sought to introduce new reports or variations of traditional reports uh, to make certain numbers more visible or whatever it may have been? Yeah, that's a, good, that's a good question. So I think um, th there have been some things, and it's more a result of certain regulatory adjustments related to re revenue recognition in particular, in particular six, and there, there are a few others that have uh, caused us to tweak or, or augment in some way uh, our disclosure that is applied in our reports. That's, that's all biotechs are doing because the rule has, the rule has changed. Um, but for the for the most part, the fairly um, consistent and slowly changing um, um, field. And so there are some uh, things related to reporting requirements as well as things related to just uh, beefing up controls and control testing just to make sure that we are um, crossing all T's with, with respect to those requirements as well. But no, no major overhauls with this deal. Okay. And I'm just curious, I've been asking this question uh, recently, and I think in companies this size where you do get to meet and catch up with people more often than, say, large enterprises, you know, is there a – have you changed the cadence with which uh, meetings are held and, and perhaps reports are discussed or whatever it might be as you, as you look to get your team in sync? Has that – have you modified that since you've been there? Well, I think I've had, um, uh, aside from investment banking, where there's very little internal meetings, I've also uh, spent a lot of time in biotech, including five years at Pfizer, which is a, a very large biotech company. And although there's tremendous um, uh, learnings and great people and, and uh, a lot to be uh, pulled from that experience, one of the things that, that was not necessarily my favorite was just the frequency and duration of, of meetings that I was that I was in, and so here, being smaller, we have a little bit more control over uh, over that type of administrative um, red tape. Certainly, there are meetings, but they're more or less important, and we have a lot more control over them. And sometimes we can get uh, in five minutes in the hallway accomplished what uh, some some big twenty-person uh, meeting in Pfizer would accomplish in an hour or two. So, so. I think from that perspective, if anything, I've uh, tried to pare down uh, the number and frequency and, and duration of um, at least unnecessary meetings. Of course, there's always uh, some meetings that are, that are critical, but, but being small, and I don't think this is unique to Arcule, I think a lot of the smaller biotechs in particular are a bit more informal and a bit more 
you know, a bit less hierarchical, and I think a lot more gets done in the hallway than in, uh, in uh, official meetings or staff meetings or uh, you know, decision gating meetings, etc. When we come back, CFO Mark Sagerin shares a finance strategic moment after this. The business landscape is changing quickly. As the pressure to manage expenses efficiently and strategically increases, you need solutions that not only help drive down costs and improve efficiencies, but meet the changing needs of your business. At U.S. Bank, we can help. We'll work with you to uncover your specific payment challenges and bring you proactive and innovative solutions and strategies that help you meet the financial goals of your organization. Our commitment to doing the right thing for our customers has earned us the designation of one of the world's most ethical companies from the Ethisphere Institute for six years in a row. To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. So uh, we always like to ask for a finance strategic moment, which is where your lines of sight uh, as a finance leader or perhaps earlier in your career investment banking allowed you to see an opportunity or a risk, something related to your visibility into it as a finance leader, however. Uh, does anything come to mind when I ask for a finance strategic moment? Yeah, that's a good question. I think... Um, you know, with respect to RQL in particular, <coughs> a lot of our most uh, strategic decisions, um, unfortunately, are still um, confidential, even if they're made a, a little bit in the, in the past. Um, however, let me think. There's probably, a, you know, one, one important strategic decision that we have to make and, and we made uh, relatively recently um, is related to markets. So, so without going into too much of the science, one of our lead programs, the mechanism of action, the way it works on, on the cells in the body, actually lends itself to multiple different mutations, multiple different diseases. And we don't have funds to, to, to do studies in every possible disease in which this drug could work. So we have to choose. And it's not immediately obvious whether you should choose a medication that is larger but more crowded. You know, the more competitive than other drugs there. Some of, some of those drugs work okay. Some, some don't work as well. Uh, or, or an education might be a little bit smaller, but where we can be first and best. And so that, that decision requires some sort of tactical sort of kind of analysis, but it also requires some strategic thinking that goes beyond the numbers. And that, that's certainly, um, uh, you know, right at the forefront of what we do here and where we have to kind of Tease out, you know, how much money do we have? How much would we need? When do we spend it? And what is the what is the end game? Where do we, where can we do? Um, where can we have the biggest impact in the most number of uh, the most number of patients? And so this is this is kind of where we we spend a variety of our time. We're thinking really down the road uh, about where we want to be and, and uh, where do we want to make the biggest impact. And we kind of have to decide now because we have to justify the trial in disease X so that's um, sort of something I could say publicly about our strategic thinking obviously anything related to deals um, I, I should I should shy away from but that's certainly also right for lots of strategic thought on the, on the finance side as well 
Okay, we're going to uh, jump to our mentoring round now where I get to ask you several quick questions intended to inspire and mentor future finance leaders. What is it that's exciting you about finance and business today? I think it's obvious, but uh, I'll ask the question anyway. What's exciting you? No, I think, I mean, I think it's exciting to be uh, in this field. This is definitely um, uh, a field like, I would say, biotechnology in general, but uh, cancer biotechnology, where we spend most of our time here at our school, is a rapidly evolving space, and outcomes are getting uh, better and better for patients every day, every year. Uh, the patients, uh, on average, are far better off year than they were five years ago or, or five years before that. On the other hand, there's still several patients who are falling through the cracks and, and the current medical um, you know, machine is not able to to uh, help them in my personal life. I've had uh, you know, a couple examples just in the last year where the medical establishment uh, canceled. And, uh, you know, that's, that's an exciting place to be where you can, you can kind of be part of the future, obviously we're not part of the present, um, but we are uh, attempting to be part of the future that's to come. Um, we get to stroke in the wheel, but it's, it's a good wheel to be in. So uh, we always like to ask this question. I, I sort of touched on it before, I suppose, but uh, when you first stepped into the CFO role, what is that piece of advice you wish someone had given you? So you're finally there. You're at our fuel. You joined this small company with such promising uh, offerings. You built this long career to get there. What, what is it that you wish someone that day had told you about this role that you didn't know? I mean, I think there's probably there's probably a couple of things um, I could say, but one is to one is to be patient. I think uh, you know you, you come to a company or, or you in a particular role and you want everything to happen day one. I'm not somebody who likes to have a bunch of things in my inbox, so let's get stuff done. Um, on the other hand, it's, it, it can be a slow process sometimes, and, and you can be, I think, a little uh, patience will go, will go a long way. What, do, you have a, do you have a personal habit or a routine uh, that you believe is in some way contributed to your professional success? Um, I don't know. I've probably had a, a, just as many uh, failures in my career as, uh, as successes for sure. But I have, um, in, terms of, in terms of personal habits, I mean, I think there's one thing I do with, with when the workload is, is tremendous um, and things are coming at you from a lot of different directions as they, as they can in a role like this. I think it makes sense sometimes to just take five minutes and make a, a checklist of all the, all the things in your inbox and all the things that, that you need to do in the, in the immediate term that can be kind of uh, de-stressing in, in a way. And, you know, you just start going through, just start going through the checklist. Um, I think that's it's a simple, it's a simple little thing, but uh, for someone like me with a bunch of different stuff going on in different directions. I think it can be uh, a helpful de-stressor. Interesting. Uh, is there a book you I, I say interesting because for someone like you who all along the way must have been making these checklists. <laughs> I see a lot of checklists in your path. Yeah. Um, is there a book you'd recommend? Uh, and again, it doesn't have to be a finance book. It, it could be a novel. It could be whatever it might be. But um, 
I'm curious what, what you might uh, choose. Um, good question. I think in the, in the general finance uh, category of favorite books, I'd say Larry Coker was one that I read a couple of times. I read it initially when I was, when I was a, a kid, I'd say, and uh, good, good combination of uh, how Wall Street can can be just as entertaining as, as it is educational. So yeah, I'd say Larry Coker is someone I haven't read yet. Okay, I'm gonna. I'm re- we're up to our final question, but I wanna. I just wanna one more time try to figure out when was it on your during your career that uh, you saw the CFO office as something you'd like to do. When was that? It wasn't back in 2000 when you're in medical school. <laughs> was it at investment banking? I imagine. Uh, but when did it become clear to you? Like this is my. This will be my next step. Great, great, uh, great question. Actually, it was it was fairly um, uh, abrupt, and it was it was during my uh, sort of biotech years at Biogen and then at, at Sage, where I was uh, just after uh, Biogen, somewhat uh, smaller biotech company. Um, I, I thought that it, it was a good, um, you know, at some point you have to declare your major, like I said, and, and that was a good sort of uh, combination of all the experience that I had sort of picked up in the past all rolled into one um, role. And that was actually what spurred the decision to go back into investment banking, into healthcare investment banking, to get the relationships, the investor um, exposures, and the just deal um, flow under the, under the belt to really equip me to, to come back into the role. So. And you knew that the CFO role, as you already shared with us, would have all the strategy decision-making that would give you that satisfaction, that sense of, a, uh, you know, achieving exactly. accomplishment. And sometimes they have different titles. Sometimes it's a COO of some companies, but other companies it's, it's just sort of a CFO, CDO combined. Um, so, so different companies have slightly different titles for the same thing. Um, but that was, uh, that was the basic, uh, basic idea. Well, we're up to our final question where I get to ask you finally to look forward and tell us over the next 12 months, what are your priorities now as a finance leader over the next 12 months? I think, I think they're really twofold. One is just securing the future of, of the group by finalizing the, the sort of optimal uh, headcount and, and, the, and the people that we have in the group. And I think we've almost um, achieved that. And, and getting everyone up to speed so that the machine is, is, is uh, humming along uh, effortlessly. Like I said, we have a, a great team already and, and uh, one more uh, joining later this, later this month. But um, that's certainly a 12-month, I'd say six-month uh, priority to make sure that that function is completely uh, sealed off. The, the, second, the second component is that 12 months is a very long time for this particular company given the stage that it's at. Um, Expect to you know be part of shepherding it into this completely next phase of its growth, where it's um, fully entrenched in, in phase three and thinking about uh, filing and, and launching new new drugs. And so, so from that perspective, I think the transition from where we are now, which is a very exciting call it inflection point, to where we'll be in 12 months, which is a um, much more advanced, probably much larger. Um, company in terms of headcount and a much more expensive company in terms of our uh, monthly quarterly burn. So preparing for that transition is definitely a 
Mark Sager, and thank you for joining us on CFO Hall Major. Hello, listeners. Do us a favor. Be certain to subscribe to CFO Thought Leader on Apple Podcasts, or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or Google Play. If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. Oh, and by the way, the CFO Yearbook 2021 Print Edition debuts on Amazon this quarter featuring 100 profiles of finance leaders from our 2020 season. Would you like to learn more about our CFO guests? Order the CFO Yearbook 2021. Thank you for supporting our efforts to bring you career journeys of CFOs driving change. We'll be back with another episode very soon. Thank you for listening.